The message of Ezra and Nehemiah to them and to us is that God directs his people by his providence and simple obedience to his word. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part 10 of An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Have you ever felt somewhat disconnected or distanced from the Old Testament scriptures? Well, hopefully through our study, you've gained a deeper grasp regarding its history and purpose. Today, Tom will continue to examine the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah, perhaps in many ways a period of time most like our current times. It was a dark time, much like today. But be encouraged, believer. The God of Israel is at work in your life, using His Word and His providence to accomplish His purpose. And what should your response be to that? Well, let's join Tom Pennington for more on the Word Unleashed. When you look at an outline of Ezra, Nehemiah, you see rebuilding the worship of God in Ezra, the first six chapters, the preparation of the temple for worship, and then seven through 10, the preparation of the people for worship under the teaching of Ezra. And then you have the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. Now I wanna go through briefly this part of Israel's history. And I'm going to put some things on the screen that I won't comment on. You'll have them for later. But I want to just lead you through this and draw us to a conclusion because there's some powerful lessons in this part of Israel's history for us. First of all, in Ezra 1 through 6, you have the return of the people from Babylon under Zerubbabel and the preparation of the temple for worship. They go with the aim of rebuilding the temple. I told you in 538, Cyrus issues a decree for the repatriation of the Jews. Here is the Cyrus Cylinder from secular history that's been discovered. Here's what he wrote. I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. So he says, this is what I've done. And of course, in this, we read Israel's history as well because that's exactly what happened for Israel. But it wasn't Cyrus, it was God. God had promised restoration. Remember Jeremiah 25 said it would only last 70 years and then it would be over. And Isaiah prophesied as we read just a few moments ago that Cyrus would be the instrument to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So God is now accomplishing exactly what he promised and he's doing it through Cyrus. When the timing is right, Cyrus conquers Babylon by God's providence and in his first year, he does something unbelievable. He decides to repatriate the Jews and to rebuild Israel's temple at Persia's expense. That's providence. And that is miraculous, even though it doesn't, on the face of it, appear to be so. So in Ezra chapter 2, Zerubbabel returns with about 50,000 Jews. This is probably not a majority of the people who were in Babylon. 
Their situation in Babylon was not like Egypt where they were enslaved and making bricks. In Babylon, they had their own houses. They also were able to work skills. Many of them stayed in Babylon because of their lucrative businesses and their comfortable lives. So only about 50,000 of the Jews returned. This is the route that they took. You can see over here is Babylon on the Fertile Crescent, the Euphrates and Tigris. They had to travel up and over the desert and come down into the area of Judah. When you come to Ezra chapter 4, they run into opposition. A group of enemies who are the Samaritans. The Samaritans are from the north. Remember, Judah's in the south. In the north, you had the ten tribes, the north. When they were carried off captive in the north, there were a few Jews left there, and then the Assyrians brought in colonists. We see that happening on the West Bank and in other places in Gaza, in Israel. That's exactly what was happening in the old world as well. And the result of intermarriage between the Jews that were left in the land after 722 and the colonists that were imported by Assyria, they married and the offspring was the Samaritans. And they become the enemies of Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the, temp- of the temple. In chapter 4, there's a summary of the opposition that arose. It's not chronological. In fact, in some cases, it's out of chronology. It's simply to give you an idea of what they faced as they tried to rebuild the temple. And I love the forms of opposition there because they are common to all times. These are the ways that Satan attacks the work of God. Distraction. They were building their own houses instead of the temple. You remember Haggai gets on to them for that. Compromise. Let us build with you. The enemies of God want to work together with the people of God. Discouragement. Sneers and mocking were part of what they had to face. Intimidation and threats. The undermining of their reputation. There were hired counselors who talked about their integrity, who called into question why they were doing what they were doing. Accusations. Letters were actually written to Persia, accusing them of what, in fact, was not true. And then even physical force. Those are the forms opposition takes to the work of God. Always, always those forms. And it's successful. By the way, notice that God had commanded his people to go back to rebuild the temple. They were doing what they had been commanded to do, and yet there was opposition. There is opposition that comes even when you are doing the will of God. So don't for a moment think that opposition means something is desperately wrong. No, in this case, Israel's enemies are successful, and the building stops for some 10 to 16 years. They had completed little more than the foundation of the temple. But in chapter 5, the building resumes, and not by coincidence, because God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and they light a fire under the people. In addition to that, verse 5 of Ezra 5 says that the eye of their God was part of what caused it to happen. So the fact that they resume the work is the gracious design of God for it to be accomplished. And so eventually, in chapter 6, the temple is completed, In 5.16, so they left 
or, or I should say the decree was issued for them to return in 538. They left in 536, and some 20 years after they began the temple, it's completed in 516 B.C. Just to kind of give you, you, you might hear something about the first temple period and the second temple period and all of that. Don't let that confuse you. The first temple period was Solomon's temple, built in 959 under Solomon and destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians. The second temple period was Zerubbabel's temple that we're studying about here that was later modified and vastly rebuilt by Herod. And he didn't complete it until just before 70 A.D. when it was destroyed by the Romans. Now, after you end Ezra 6, there is a gap, remember? A gap between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7 of about 58 years. And in that gap, the events of Esther occur. Ezra and Nehemiah, those events occur primarily in the land of Canaan, but Esther's events occur back at the ranch, back in Persia, as the Jews there face extermination and under God's providence and the work of Esther, they are saved and delivered. So, that 58-year gap then takes us to Ezra 7 to 10 and Ezra's own memoirs. These things occur during his lifetime. The first six chapters were the preparation of the temple for worship. Under the ministry of Ezra is the preparation of the people for worship. There's an amazing document that occurs that when you have time, I would encourage you to read because it's really a shocking document. In Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through 26, you have Artaxerxes' decree. It is a detailed official record of what the Persian king commanded. Look at what he commanded. I've, I've summarized it here. For the people of Israel, he authorized them to return. He authorized the transport of Persian assets to the land of Israel. He, he established the proper use of those assets to accomplish the mission. And he authorized the use of government funds to make it happen. To the government treasurers, he established a government budget for the project, and he exempted the temple personnel, as the worship of God is established there at the temple in Israel, from paying taxes to Persia. For Ezra, he gave him authority to set up a, prov a provincial government and to make political judicial appointments, and he gave Ezra the authority to carry out the punishment of lawbreakers. Incredible. Why? Well, listen to Ezra. I love what Ezra says. In fact, turn there. Ezra chapter 7. After he completes the document itself, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 27, he writes, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And he has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Again, you see that hand of providence working behind the scene to accomplish his purpose. If you had been there, it wouldn't have looked like a miracle, but the results would have, and that's what... Ezra and Nehemiah want us to see. God put it in the king's heart, and the hand of God was upon me. So in chapter 8, Ezra returns. In 458 B.C., Ezra returned, the second return now, 
after a gap of some 58 years, and he returns not with 50,000 people as the first return, but with 2,000 people. When he gets there, he is absolutely devastated by what he discovers because when he arrives there, he discovers that the people of God that have returned under the first return have begun to intermarry with the nations around them. They have married with all the ites of the land. You can read about it in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, don't misunderstand. The issue was not racial. It was religious. What was at stake was the continuation of the covenant nation and the worship of the true God. Remember, God said, when you go to the land, don't intermarry. Don't let your sons and daughters intermarry, because if they do, you'll end up worshiping idols. And Ezra sees that. Verses 3 and 4 of Ezra 9, he's distraught. And he tears his clothes, and he pulls out his beard and hair, and he sits down appalled. And then he does what we should do. He prays. One of the most magnificent prayers in Scripture. Ezra chapter 9. In fact, turn there. Let me just read a portion of it to you. Chapter 9, verse 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to open shame, as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us, I love this image, a peg in this holy place. And our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but he's extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. As a result of Ezra's intercession in chapter 10, The people take an oath to deal with this problem. They even consent to return their pagan, unbelieving wives to their families. While God hates divorce and doesn't accept it among his people, except for two notable exceptions detailed in the New Testament, the case of unfaithfulness in sexual unfaithfulness and abandoned by an unbeliever, here, because of the possible destruction of the nation in a special case, They send their pagan, unbelieving wives away. So in the period of the restoration, you have these three returns. They return to rebuild their temple under Zerubbabel. They return to purify the worship of God under Ezra. And they return to rebuild and refortify the city of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. Old Testament history comes to a close with the career of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the builder. Now, In chapter 1 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah fasts and prays and weeps, and he has a specific request of God. If you look at verse 11 of Nehemiah 1, he says, grant me success and compassion before this man. And then the last verse ends by telling us that he is the cupbearer to the king. How did a Jewish person get such an important role in Persia? Well, don't forget that Esther was the king's stepmother, and God is at work behind the scenes providentially to preserve his people. So about four months later, chapter 2, verse 1 tells us, four months after his prayer and his coming aware of the problem, Nehemiah lets his sadness show for the first time. 
After three months, he shows his sadness. The king notices and asks why. Frankly, that in and of itself is a miracle. Most kings are very selfish, self-dominated persons who don't notice other people. But here he notices. And Nehemiah explains in chapter 2, verse 3. And folks, this doesn't happen. And look at verse 4 of chapter 2. The king says, what do you want? So in verse 5, Nehemiah says, let me return and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The walls aren't built. The temple's standing. The worship of God is going on, but there are no walls. If you've never read this book before, what would be the odds of a yes? Not very great. But look at verse 6. It pleased him to send me. But Nehemiah isn't done. Notice verse 7, he asked for letters to the governors and even a letter to Asaph to supply timber for the project. Verse 8 says the king granted it because of the good hand of God. So in verse 9 of Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah arrives in Judah about August of 445 B.C. to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Chapters 4 through 6 chronicles the tremendous opposition that he faced. There's the external opposition of powerful men, all of whom are mentioned in secular history. There's the internal opposition of sin and discouragement and fear. It's all documented in those chapters. Why would there be such a lengthy chronicle of opposition? It was to show that, humanly speaking, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was an impossibility. But Nehemiah's prayers show that What is impossible with man is possible with God. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, God frustrated their plan. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. That's the idea. The opposition is overcome by God. And so in chapter 6, verse 15, the wall was finished in 52 days. Chapter 6, verse 16 is the key to understanding Nehemiah. How did they do it? How did they complete the wall? Look at Nehemiah 6 and verse 16. When all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They saw that it was humanly impossible. God intervened. Miraculously? No. Providentially, behind the scenes, doing what needed to be done. The death angel didn't show up. There was no collapsing of the enemy's resources. There were none of those dramatic events that you read in the rest of the Old Testament. There was instead quiet, behind the scenes, God shaping hearts, directing kings, and overcoming the opposition against the work he wanted done. It was accomplished with the help of our God. So the wall's complete, but in chapters 7 through 10 of Nehemiah, you have the rebuilding or the reviving of the people. The theme here is God directs his people through his word. Chapter 8, it is a powerful lesson on the importance of God's word. In chapter 8, verse 1, on October 8 of 445 B.C., all the people gather. And in verse 7, Ezra reads from the law of God and explains it from daybreak until noon. And the people weep, but Ezra and Nehemiah call for a celebration. So they gather the next day to study and they discover the festival of booths, the feast of booths, and they immediately realize that they haven't done that and they respond in obedience. 
As you read that account, you'll see phrases like this, as it is written and according to the ordinance. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to get the point. The people of God responding to the word of God, obeying the Bible as it's discovered. So in chapter 9, you have the people's prayer of confession. And it is one of the most beautiful prayers in Scripture. In their confession, you see these two themes showing up again and again. They say to God, you have constantly shown your grace and power to us, and we in return have refused to keep your law. That's what it comes down to. They got it. After 70 years of captivity, they understood. So after their prayer in chapter 10, the people covenant in writing to obedience, especially in the areas where their disloyalty to God has been most flagrant, and that's intermarriage with the people around, keeping the Sabbath, which they had not done, and providing, in fact, that was the reason, you remember, for the 70 years of captivity, one year for each of the Sabbath years that had not been kept, and providing for the temple service. So they promised to do those things. In chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah, the city of Jerusalem itself is repopulated now that the walls have been rebuilt. The walls themselves are dedicated, and then there's a great celebration. Then there's another one of those gaps. Between chapters 12 and 13 of Nehemiah, there is a time gap of roughly 14 years, and Nehemiah returned to Babylon for a short time as he had promised to do. When he returns in chapter 13 for his second term, he finds that the people have disobeyed in the very areas that just 14 years before they had signed a written covenant to keep. Well, in the midst of that, God does raise up one more prophet. The writer of the last book of our Old Testament, Malachi. And Malachi calls the people to repent of these sins and to prepare for the coming of the Lord, which of course would occur some 400 years later in the person of Jesus Christ. Remarkable history of the Old Testament. Let me draw it practically together for you. The message of Ezra and Nehemiah and of this period of Israel's history, I love this period of Israel's history. The reason is because it is more like our times than the rest of the Old Testament. God isn't doing miracles today. There are no plagues. Instead, our God is working by providence and obedience to his word. He's working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose just as he does in Ezra and Nehemiah, and he's commanding his people to live in obedience to the book. God directs us. Listen carefully. The message of Ezra and Nehemiah to them and to us is that God directs his people by his providence and simple obedience to his word. You want to know what to do? God's providence will pave the way for you, and you obey the scripture. That's all you need to know. You don't need a miracle in your life. You need to do what God has commanded. And that reality the fact that God directs us like that is supposed to provide help and comfort. Help is the meaning of Ezra's name, and comfort is the meaning of Nehemiah's name. Do you ever get discouraged? Do you look at the miracles of Scripture and then look at your own life and wonder, where is God? Why isn't he parting the Red Sea for me? Be comforted. 
God's work in Ezra and Nehemiah and in our lives is no less amazing than the miracles. In fact, I would say in some ways it's more astonishing. It takes far more for God to work behind the scenes accomplishing his purpose than for him to intervene in a dramatic miracle. It's just harder to trace his hand. The God of Israel is at work in your life using his word and his providence to accomplish his purpose. And what should your response be to that? Trust his providence. Trust the good hand of God in your life and obey his word. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will continue with part 11 on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.